I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To help us get to the truth of the matter about the state of politics today in America, we have with us one of the eminent scholars of politics in America. We have CNN's Chris Saliza. Chris, thanks so much for being here today. My gosh, with an introduction like that, you've already guaranteed me to come back. <laughs> <laughs> I got to ask you, you have a fascinating piece out today. So this it's, it's December 1st, and everybody in Washington is talking about Representative Lauren Boebert, of course, Colorado Republican, who this week called a fellow member of Congress, Ilhan Omar, Democrat from Minnesota. She said that Omar was blackhearted and evil. She said that she was a Muslim terrorist, essentially. Our politics are, are, are not civil, and we know this, and it's been happening you know, for years, of course. But what does this represent to you, this moment? Yeah, I mean, I think that Lauren Boebert or said this and that Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia kind of ran to her defense. That stuff really, if you've been paying even passing attention to the politics over the last five or six years, probably shouldn't surprise you. This is the sort of thing that our politics has devolved into. It's ugly. It's I was going to say it's like high school, but I actually think it's worse than high school. It, maybe it's like middle school. You know, name calling, just throwing red meat to the base. But I think the, the bigger issue is not that we're shocked by it, but that we try to understand where it's coming from. And I think the where it's coming from is important because I think in Republican politics, particularly since Donald Trump started running and definitely since he won, performance has become sort of the name of the game. That is, we have this conception, particularly in Washington, I think, but th there's a conception of people who have followed politics for a long time that the idea that there's a shared belief among elected officials that their job is to sort of come to Washington, represent their constituents, work to get things done that are in the broad good of the country. Now, obviously, there's there's always going to be a lot of disagreement there. There's a reason we have two different parties in the major parties in this country. That's fine. Disagreement is normal. But that idea, I think, feels a little arcane now in that I don't think Lauren Boebert or Marjorie Taylor Greene or Madison Cawthorn from uh, North Carolina or Matt Gates from Florida. There are others, but I don't want to list every one of them. I don't think that their goal fundamentally is what can I get done using the levers of Congress to benefit both my district, state and country? I, I think it's much more about. What can I do to further my personal brand? I, I wrote in that piece, you know, I think a lot of these members measure their success not by bills sponsored or things that they help get done legislatively, but rather by number of appearances on Fox News or One American News Network or, or you know, one of these other uh, right wing news outlets. And that sort of fundamentally undermines what we all think of what a member of Congress wants to do. I think that's just radically changed. And I think that's not the only reason we get very little done politically, but it's definitely a big reason. And, and the other thing is, Boebert is not the exception, in my opinion. Boebert is more of the future rule. That is, I think there's going to be a lot more 
members of Congress on the Republican side who look and sound like Lauren Boebert than there will be, say, Lisa Murkowski, you know, someone who's much more in that old-timey Washington mode of, well, what can we find as a compromise? Uh, what can we get done? Yeah, someone who's substantive. I mean, this is the thing that really struck me about your piece is that, you know, we now have members of Congress, and I want to ask you, is this on both sides, not just Republican, but also Democrat? We now have members of Congress who come to Washington not to pass legislation or even necessarily to help their constituents at home with anything. They come to be performative, to yes. see, you know, a measure of success isn't how many bills you've passed or co-sponsored. It's how many times you've appeared on Fox News or CNN or MSNBC mm -hmm. or in whatever outlet means something to you and yeah. your audience. And so we now have that. This is something that's really reinforcing polarization, of course, as well. Yeah. And I think so. I think it's much more pronounced on the Republican side. And, and I think that that is I'm resistant to to lay everything at the feet of Donald Trump, because I do think Donald Trump, generally speaking, was a a result of an already bubbling sort of toxic mix. I, I don't think Donald Trump created that mix. Right. I think he weaponized it, took advantage of it, worsened it. But it's not as though everything was hunky-dory before Donald Trump started running for president. Like, go back to, you know, I think he announced in July or June 2015. Go back to April 2015. It's not like we were all singing kumbaya, right? There were still problems. But I do think what he did was prove for Republicans that this is a path to success. I think what a lot of people don't understand who don't spend a lot of time in politics uh, and with politics is how much of a sort of imitative thing it is that that these politicians are always looking around to see what the other guy or woman is doing. They're they're copycats at some level. If something's working, they latch onto it because they want it to work for them, too. And I think when you see a Trump do what he did in ways that you would think would never work politically and it works, it the nature of politics means that it creates a bunch of copycats. And I think that's what you're seeing. I don't think it's any coincidence that the people I listed, Gates, Boebert, Cawthorn, Taylor Greene, all those people with the maybe exception of Gates have been elected in the last two to four years. They, they, they are elected in the Trump version of the Republican Party. I always return to this quote, 1990, I think it was, Donald Trump gave an interview to Playboy magazine and he said, they were asking about him and his life. And he said, this should, I, I'm paraphrasing, but it's close. He said, the show is Trump and it's sold out performances every night. And if you think about that as it animated his presidential campaign and then how it, I think, serves as sort of a guide for how these more junior members of the Republican Party, the Boberts of the world, how they think about what they want to be politically it's it is very tilted toward performance and away from policy. The other one I always notice, Madison Cawthorn, right? He's 25 years old. He, he gets elected to, to the House from North Carolina and he sends out a, a note to his Republican colleagues upon arriving saying that he's focused on comms, communications, building his communications department over building his policy people. Like that's meaningful. That is telling about what, they prioritize. And when you do that, well, we know what the outcomes are going to be. There's going to be less focus on policy. There's going to be less policy expertise. 
I think one of the things I've been doing this now since, you know, 1998. And I think one of the things I've seen is there's a real decline in the number of members of Congress who, who have policy expertise in a particular area because it's simply not rewarded, right? Knowing a lot about how the ag bill wends its way through Congress used to be something of like real value. Leonard Boswell in Iowa, that was his thing, right? He he did that because ag mattered, the ag bill mattered to Iowa, and he knew that knowing about that would help him get reelected. There aren't a lot of those people anymore because it's not rewarded in our current system. Yeah, and Murtha and people like that. Murtha right. was an Murtha expert on, perfect example. you know, he was yep. an expert on defense and he knew everything about national security and about the Defense Department and his entire, you know, and he was Tip O'Neill's guy on that and, and in subsequent iterations of the Democratic Party right up until he was, you know, he retired. Well, and just just one other point to make is I remember when I first started covering congressional politics at Roll Call, the, the most powerful people other than the chairs of like the Appropriations Committee and the Ways and Means Committee were the cardinals, the, the, the chairman of the subcommittees of the Appropriations Committee because they doled out the money that now if if I said to Lauren Boebert, OK, uh, Republicans take the majority in, in 2022. In 2023, would you rather be a cardinal on the House Appropriations Committee or have a guarantee of 75 Fox News appearances in 2023? She would take Fox News appearances 100 times out of 100. And she, she's far from alone. But that's a shift just from the 2000 to 2020, those two decades. It's just it's just changed fundamentally. So, Chris, given all this, I want to ask you, at the highest levels of politics, at the highest, highest strategic levels, what is the name of the game now? Is it media appearances? Is it performative? Or is there something else at the highest levels of political strategy? What is the name of the game? I think that performance can only get you so far. That said, it can get you pretty far. I mean, the people we're talking about are members of Congress. They're, they're not, they're not, you know, the head of their uh, local school board, right? I mean, there's only 435 of them. You know, you can say what you want about the House and how hard it is to win and, you know, do you have any power when you're in the House minority? But there's only 435 of them and there's only X number of people who have ever served in the House of Representatives. That said, I, I do wonder... Although Trump's election belies what I'm going to say, my belief had long been that performance can only get you so far, that you can be good at the performance aspects of politics, which I think matter more now than they ever have before. But if you have no substance or very little substance, that will eventually get exposed in ways that limit how high up you can go in politics, right? You know, can you get elected to the House? Maybe. Can you get elected to the Senate? Eh, can you get elected president? Probably not. The The issue that I have is that, you know, Donald Trump breaks all of these theories and that this is someone who, whether you love him or you hate him, this is someone of, of extremely limited substance. He, he lacked any real core set of beliefs on foreign policy or domestic policy beyond maybe trade when he came, ran for office, served in office and now has left office. The the question always with Trump is, is he a kind of a one-off, right? Is is there a, 
lesson to be learned there? Or is it just like this is a guy who is sort of part of our culture for decades and was for many people sort of aspirational symbol of success and wealth? And you just can't recreate that. Or is there a blueprint there? I mean, I think the Boberts, Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world are hoping it's a blueprint. I think the Tom Cotton, Josh Hawley, John Kennedy in the Senate are all sort of using it, using Trumpism as a guide, but trying to to affix some substance to it. Again, whether you agree or disagree with Tom Cotton or Josh Hawley's policies, they at least have taken a few policy stances in ways that Donald Trump really never did. Uh, the only policy thing he really did during the campaign was say, here's a list of people I might appoint to the Supreme Court. That's not really a policy. I guess it, it could be indicative of sort of a broader way in which you view policy, but it's not really. So I think you see I think you see some of these people like the Boberts of the world. My, my guess is they're probably a little bit capped out. I, I would struggle to see her winning a statewide race. But. You know, the House is not nothing. And, uh, you know, these people, Marjorie Taylor Greene, she, she's not on any committees. Paul Gosar of Arizona, he's not in any committees. That would be political death two decades ago because you can't do anything for the people who represent you. Now it's a badge of, of, of honor. So in that vein, I, I mean, should we be surprised that Trump is still so popular? I mean, after all, he lost the presidency. He lost the House and he lost the Senate. There's never been a candidate in history who would still be the one that Republicans want to run in 2024, given those facts. How do we reconcile that? Is it again what you're saying here? You couldn't be more right. I wrote a piece. I wrote a piece a week or two ago that was headlined something like the greatest trick Trump has ever pulled. And, and that is exactly the, the theory of it, which is. In any other election cycle, with any other candidate, if you oversaw four years of going from control of the White House, control of the House, and control of the Senate to not controlling any of those things, that person would be cast out of either party and seen sort of as a pariah. Like you wouldn't want that person around. And, and not only is Donald Trump not cast out, to your point, he remains as powerful, if not more powerful, within the Republican Party. I don't know the answer to it. I, I truly don't. I'm, I, I, am, I am baffled by it. There's no real precedent for something like that happening other than, you know, this is more a cult of personality than it, right now than it is a sort of party. You know, I mean, when we think of party... Generally speaking, when we think of parties in this country, we think of a set of agreed upon policy proposals or principles or laws that that kind of unite them. They don't all agree on everything, but broadly speaking, the Republican Party, you know, lower taxes, less government, the Democratic Party, social safety net and, and the necessity of sort of the government to help in certain parts of your life. I don't know if there is the there are those organizing policy principles right now for the Republican Party. Because if you think about Trump and then contrast it to like say Paul Ryan in 2010, for example, you know, Donald Trump on debt and deficit, he doesn't care. I mean, <laughs> you know, uh Donald Trump on foreign policies, uh, you know, isolationist maybe. Donald Trump on trade is the opposite of what 
the Republican Party's view was prior to Donald Trump, you know, on taxes, sure, lower taxes, you know, but I mean, there doesn't appear to be a sort of unifying set of policy principles and in its place has become this person who personifies what it means to be a Republican now, which again, I find remarkable because Donald Trump wasn't a Republican five years before he ran for president. I mean, it's not, this is not someone with a lifetime commitment to Republican Party principles. This is someone who's, who is, you know, vacillated all over the map in terms of what party he's a member of. And he certainly made politics into a game of heroes and villains and, you know, things like that. It's, you know, it seems like everything they're doing strategically with Trump and his immediate entourage is that they're looking at things through the prism of professional wrestling. Who's up? Yes. Who's down? Who's who's yep. who's the bad guy? Who's the face? Yep. Who's the, you know, and it, it's hard to keep track of sometimes, but it certainly seems to work for him. My editor, Brooke Brower, and I are both uh, pro wrestling fans from way back, and we talk about this all the time. I think the sort of the outsized characters that he uses are very much a wrestling staple. The villainizing, you know, and the, the heroizing and villainizing, you know, that there's no gray area. It's either Hulk Hogan's the good guy and the Iron Sheik is the bad guy and never the twain shall meet. Um, <laughs> right. And, and, and you know, he, he wanted he wanted to make he wanted to make General Mattis then who became Secretary Mattis, Mad Dog Mattis. Right. And Mattis said, well, my name's Jim. It's this like cartoony version of our culture. I remind people, Linda McMahon, you know, the, the wife of Vince McMahon, the man who made wrestling a national phenomenon, was Donald Trump's small business administrator for eight years. Uh, you know, I mean, the ties between those families are significant. It's a slightly terrifying, but I think relevant way to understand how he views politics is through that lens, is is sort of this larger than life, you know, painting with the broadest of broad strokes. And, you know, just like wrestling, giving people sort of what they want, throwing, throwing the red meat they want thrown. I always remind people, I was a child of the Cold War. You know, one of the most hated wrestlers of that time was a guy named Nikolai Volkov. He actually was not even Russian. I think he was like Bulgarian. He was not Russian, but he would wear like the, the big fur hat and he would walk to the center of the ring with a, a, a Russia flag and he would sing the Russian national anthem because that was. And, and of course, the, the, the opposite of him was Hulk Hogan, all American. He come to the state, to the arena with the I am a real American, you know, that whole thing like it's not that far from the ways in which Donald Trump has sort of sought to cast. Like if you're for him, you love America and you're great. And if you're against him, you you hate America and you want us to fail and you bow to dictators. You know, and that brings us back to Boebert. It's sort of like, well, if you don't th see things the way Warren Boebert does, then you're a potential terrorist, right? There's no, there's no gray area. There's no like, well... Ilhan Omar and I don't share a lot of similar beliefs politically or religiously, but I respect her beliefs and how she's arrived at them. That doesn't exist. It's she's like you said, she's evil hearted because she she and I don't share these beliefs. And, and that is a change, I think, even from 
20 years ago. Well, yeah. And back when you and I were coming up in policy and politics, you know, a Republican Party would look at, you know, what Boebert calls the jihad squad and say, I don't agree with anything they say, but you have to give them, you know, respect because they have ideas, they have convictions. I don't agree with their policy ideas, but they have those policy ideas. Now they're not, there's no respect coming from the Boebert quarters. It's, you know, this is the jihad squad. I remember when I was in my 20s, I, I, I was always leery of older folks waxing poetic about the way things used to be. So I myself, I myself am always nervous about doing that. But I do, I do think it is worth noting that I just look at the leaders, Senate leaders like Bill Frist, not really a kind of confrontational guy, a guy who, yes, he was a Republican, but worked with Democrats. Trent Lott, again, not real. Like, yes, a conservative down the line. You know, I mean, I don't think I don't think the Heritage Foundation rated Trent Lott a liberal, but not that kind of conservative. And I, I do think it existed prior to Trump, but I think Trump sort of provided jet fuel to the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, you know, the language that a Lauren Boebert uses, the Jihad Squad is a good example. That's the kind of thing that 15 years ago, Rush Limbaugh would say for sure on his radio show, right? Oh, the Jihad Squad is at it again. You know, he would do that whole thing. But it would never penetrate into what we would describe as establishment Republican politics. No one would you know, I think I just think it's very unlikely that that someone in the Republican Party would somehow latch on to that and say, oh, we need to use it now. It's just sort of part of the vernacular. Yeah. Let's let's talk about the Democratic side. Let's talk about President Biden. Things aren't going so well for him from a approval rating standpoint. He's now at 36 percent. You know, is it going to get worse? Is it going to get lower? Uh, you know, how do these ratings correlate to the midterm, you know, coming up next fall? And are you surprised? I mean, after all, Biden has passed two pretty monumental pieces of legislation. His approval ratings don't seem to jibe with what he's actually accomplished. Now, you can also talk about, you know, Afghanistan was a, a disaster. You can point to things like that. But, you know, we're getting healthier. We're getting more vaccinated. You know, our, our economy up until Omicron was going pretty well aside from some inflationary cautions. But, you know, why is he so low right now? Yeah, so I think uh, it's a good question. I mean, I think part of this is that ever since probably Bill Clinton's impeachment, so late 90s, barring a a national crisis like we saw on September 11th, it's very hard for me to see a president of either party ever, well, I won't say ever, in the near future getting to 65% approval, even 60% approval. I just, we're so polarized now. We're so all about, you know, rallying behind the party flag that it feels like there's a built-in 40-ish percent on both sides who will basically (laughs) say, I'm with this guy or I'm against this guy, even if the president never utters a word and we're really fighting in the 20, you know, 15 to 20 percent in the middle. Um, I think so. I think some of it's just that the, the, the ceiling is pretty low in terms of approval rating. It's like 
if you get the 55 or 56, that's probably about as high as you're going to get in this current environment. Again, with with all other things being equal, big outside events tend to, you know, George Bush, I was um, writing about this for a book that I'm right, working on. And George Bush, right after September 11th, was like 92% approval. I mean, you know, those things aside, I think the ceiling in terms of approval is pretty low. And in truth, the floor is pretty high. I think you you basically go between about 40% and maybe 40% approval to about 55% approval. Hard to go below that, hard to go above it. Biden, more generally, I don't think it's just that that, that has to do with his problems. I think, you know, the fundamental promise of the Biden campaign was competence. It was, look, whether you are a Republican or a Democrat, or you like Donald Trump or you hate Donald Trump, it's hard not to say that he handled the coronavirus incompetently, that this was not the ways in which we would want the government to react to a, you know, once in a hundred years global pandemic. And Biden's promise was like, I may be on the older end, you know, I, I've been in politics a long time. I know a lot of people don't love that. But in this one moment, you kind of need the bureaucrat. Right? You, you need the guy who kind of knows what levers to push at Health and Human Services or the CDC or the FDA or, you know, where we can find more money or more PPE or more, you know, whatever it may be that like the one time in recent years where knowing exactly how the government works is actually a good thing is this moment. And I think people, voters, you know, they have unreasonable expectations. I remember when Obama got elected, it was like, there were a lot of liberals who were like, well, why isn't he closed Gitmo like five days after he had been president? It's like, well, it's not, it's just not that easy, right? And I think when you're dealing with an infectious disease that mutates, it's not that easy. You know, I really do think that every conversation about Biden's presidency, particularly, you know, where we are now in it, has to start with the coronavirus. To, to me, his ability, his ratings run relatively closely to cases. When it looks as though cases are heading down, his numbers start moving slightly up. When it, when things like the Delta variant happen, that also, to your point, dovetailed with Afghanistan, dovetailed with inflation, his numbers tanked. I think he is right when he says, until we get COVID-19 under control, the economy is not going to ever come back to where we want it. Nothing else is going to be normal. I think that's exactly right. I also think it's sort of at the heart of the problem that he faces, because if you can only do so much to control the economy as president, well, hell, you can do even less to control a an infectious disease for which 40% of the country do not have full vaccination. And some who don't want to be. And many at this point, I think, you know, I don't want to say it's 40 percent, but many of that 40 percent are actively, to your point, are actively not are choosing not to get it when it's available. So what does Biden need to do? I mean, you know, people are it's it's a long way away in political terms. But, you know, in a couple of years, he's got to start running or he's got to indicate whether he's going to run again. Everybody's saying he's going to be too old. Everybody says he's too old now. There's you know, squabbling within the, the Democratic Party over whether Vice President Harris is capable or should be the nominee. There could be, you know, primary challenges. There could be all kinds of things. What, what do you see as Biden's, you know, future in politics? I mean, I think 
step one is the, the hardest to control. Hope like hell COVID-19 becomes an endemic rather than a pandemic. I, you know, I, obviously, Joe Biden can do a hell of a lot more than you or I can to make that happen, right? I, I mean, he, he can't do everything. He can't snap his fingers and make it go away because if he could, he would. But he, he has more levers to, to pull to, to at least help us, uh, usher us into that way. If spring 2022 feels like a return to normal and, and, and from then on, it's, it's a, yes, people are getting COVID, but the number of severe cases, the number of hospitalizations, the number of deaths are all trending very low. You know, then I think Biden can, can make a credible argument that he beat back this once in a hundred years thing. And my guess is if that was the case, starting in the spring of 2022, the economy, which is already showing considerable signs of life, would, would bounce back even faster. And then I think he's not in a bad position at all to get reelected. Yes, he's going to face questions of the fact that, you know, he's 79 years old right now. So he's, he'd be 82. His birthday is November 20th. So I think he'd be 82 election day 2024, but he very quickly turned 83. I think those will be real questions that he will have to answer for. And obviously, unforeseen health problems that we don't. Yeah, I mean, they're unforeseen for a reason. If that happens, yes, there, there will be any number of questions about whether he should run, who should replace him, how should they replace him. But I, I, presuming sort of health being OK, I really do think so much is dependent on getting this under control. And, uh, you know, I think for a lot of us, I'll speak personally, you know, Thanksgiving was great. I went to a friend's house. It was my family and my mom who lives near us and, and their family and, and, and their mom. Everyone had, had at least one dose. I have a nine-year-old. He only has one dose. Getting the next one next week. Or boosted. And everyone had taken a test. And it felt like, okay, like we can hug each other. And, and then the next morning, I get my CNN update. Worrisome variant emerging in South Southern Africa. And I just feel like it just feels like a gut punch. And, and, and of course, that's not Biden's fault. In, in fact, you could argue it is mostly the fault of the unvaccinated people, at least in this country, people are choosing not to be vaccinated. And yet there's only the one guy who's president. And so it's it's going to fall on him more than it probably should. But that's just the reality he's got. Yeah, it sure was the ultimate holiday buzzkill yes, to golly. get up with that the next day after, you know, being with family for the first time in a couple of years for Thanksgiving. Chris, let me ask you this. The Democratic Party, does Biden need to bring the Democratic Party together? I've heard, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, how there's polarization within the Democratic Party coming from AOC, the squad, Bernie, Liz versus the centrist Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema. Biden is, you know, ran as a centrist, of course, and has been a centrist his entire career. Does does Biden need to wrangle that in order for the Democrats to have a chance next fall and, and certainly going forward beyond that? Let me answer next fall. I, I think next fall is going to be bad for Democrats unless something drastic changes. There, there's a lot of history to suggest it will be average seat loss in a first midterm of a president under 50 percent approval is in the high 30s right. in terms of seats lost in the House. So the last president who was successful at the midterm with those kind of ratings was Jimmy Carter, I think, right? Right. It, it's it's And I think that, right, Carter was at 49% approval in 78, and he lost 11 House seats, which isn't a lot, but would make Republicans 
the majority if it happened in, in this Congress. So, so you have the combination of history and very small margins, both in the House and Senate for Democrats. In some ways, and again, I said earlier, and I'll return to this, I always hesitate to put everything at Donald Trump's feet. But if Donald Trump is the nominee in 2024, that's the greatest unifier of Democratic division possible. I mean, we, we saw that in 2020. The fight was a little preempted because, you know, in March 2020, everything started to shut down. But there was a real fight. Bernie Sanders looked like the nominee for the first month and a half of the of, of the year, at least. And, you know, there might have been a more extended fight between Biden and Sanders. But but for all the talk of, oh, will the party come together? Well, not, you know, by the time the summer came and 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 certainly by the time the fall came, there wasn't a whole lot of people saying like, wow, I'm not voting. I'm not I'm a Sanders person and I'm not voting for Biden because they shared a common enemy in Trump. And it was like, well. Joe Biden's, I would have preferred Bernie Sanders. Joe Biden's clearly better than Donald Trump, so I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. If Trump is not in the picture, I actually think that complicates the, the, the Democratic effort because they don't have that great unifier of their party on the other side. You know, you, you could say what you want about Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley or, or whoever you think might, Tom Cotton, whoever you think might be the Republican nominee if Donald Trump doesn't run. But none of them evoke the sort of visceral hatred among Democrats that Donald Trump does. Could they? <laughs> Anything's possible. Um, but, you know, I, I think that that but the, the best hope for Democrats to be united in 2024 is Republican nominee Donald Trump. And I, I think that, you know, as I sit here today, that seems to me to be the most likely outcome. To me, if he runs, he's a extremely strong favorite to be the Republican nominee. And everything that I see, you know, and, and hear both publicly and privately all point to him wanting to run. So, you know, that problem may solve itself. And through no good efforts of the Democratic Party, it may just solve itself because Donald Trump still exists and he's on the other side. And they're not going to let, you know, no Democrats going to cross over and vote for Donald Trump because they're not thrilled with what Joe Biden has done over the first four years. But in the meantime, are they, is the inter-party squabbles, the internecine warfare in the Democratic Party, is it going to tear down the Democratic Party and make it weaker? It's hard to judge the 2024 Democratic Party without knowing what happened in the midterm. But I think we can talk about the midterm. I think, yes, I mean, you're you've already seen moderates and liberals take some votes they may not have loved to take. I think you're going to see more of that, particularly uh, as it relates to this social safety net bill. So I, I think that Republicans will do everything they can to make every moderate Democrat or every Democrat running in a swing district answerable for Nancy Pelosi and Ilhan Omar and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, too. Um, I don't think liberals have been as mindful of that reality as maybe they could be. I, you know, I think moderates in the party, uh, ele in elected office worry about being sort of cast with that, that wide net, just being labeled as that and not being able to get out from under it. And I think it's a very legitimate worry. I think it's a point of debate whether, even if the Ocasio-Cortezes of the world were 100% on board with the Joe Biden kind of moderate course, 
if Republicans still wouldn't attack every moderate Democrat as a tool of Nancy Pelosi and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Like, it's possible that no matter what they do, the attack's going to be the same. But yeah, I mean, I think particularly as it relates to votes that have to be cast, you know, those are the things that are mined for opposition research. So the more uncomfortable votes that moderates have to cast in order to satisfy the liberal wing of the party and vice versa, but uh, to satisfy the liberal wing of the party, the, the more problematic it will be for them in the midterms. Chris, last question. What What is the Republican Party worried about, if anything? What are the, what, what keeps Republicans up at night right now? I think it's Wallace and Gromit, the cartoon where the, uh, the, the dog is they're on a train and the dog is just putting railroad tracks down like every second as it goes. There is an element of that as sort of like the operating metaphor of the current Republican Party, that it's kind of like, we'll worry about the future in the future. Make it up as we go along. The way I think about it is what keeps Mitch McConnell up at night? Because again, whatever you think of Mitch McConnell, this is someone who has spent decades in pursuit of a more conservative Congress and country. What, What does he worry about? I think he worries about Trump's, their inability, the establishment's inability to stop candidates and policies that Donald Trump wants. I mean, I think that there's already, you know, in Senate and House races, he's picking, can't he, Donald Trump is picking candidates that are not the most electable. He's focused very much on avenging the 10 uh, against the 10 Republicans who voted for his impeachment in the House. He's focused very heavily on trying to beat Lisa Murkowski, who voted for his impeachment in the Senate. And so I think McConnell, the the hard thing for McConnell is if you're him and you're trying to control the controllables, Donald Trump is the ultimate uncontrollable, right? He's the ultimate sort of variable in in all of this. You have no idea what he's going to say on a daily basis. You have no idea what he's going to do on a daily basis. And so I think that probably is the thing that worries Republicans most, both as it relates to 2022 and as it relates to 2024, that, you know, the guy ostensibly driving the train doesn't listen to anyone else and no one really has any clear idea of where he's driving it or even if there's a there's a sort of map that he's following, if he's not just kind of like jerking it from one side to the next. And I think that's really difficult for someone like a McConnell or a McCarthy in the House who are you know, trying to lay these plans in place to get them by next November where they want to be, they could do all of those things right. They could check every one of those boxes and Trump could jerk the train wildly to the left and then they have to change everything. It is hard indeed to wrangle Jimmy the Superfly Schnooka. So true. So true. Just so unpredictable. You just never know what's coming next. That's right. Chris, Thank you so much for helping us begin to get to the truth of the matter about these really complex political issues that we're, you know, looking at closely. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 